Hi. I'm Randy. <laughs> and I'm Claire. And you're listening to Killer Vibes. A true crime podcast. This is the last episode of the season. <gasps> Woohoo! And we're coming at you with a big case. I'm so excited. A local case. Oh my gosh. A cold case. <gasps> oh my gosh. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is the story of Peggy Hetrick. Dun, dun, dun. Jumping right in. <laughs> On the morning of February 11th, 1987, a bicyclist on his way to work rode past an open field in South Fort Collins, Colorado, where he saw the body of a dead woman. Side note, if, <laughs> if you don't know, we're recording from Fort Collins, Colorado. Colorado. <laughs> now, I don't want to go into too much detail about this because... It is incredibly disturbing, and I know that our podcast is going to air on KCSU FM at 6 a.m., and I just don't <laughs> want someone to be, like, making breakfast and hear me describe this in detail. Probably not the most delectable thing to hear, right. but... So, all I'll say is that there was mutilation to her private areas, and it is important to know that because it comes up later, but... um. If you want to, you can go look it up. It's in most stories about this. I just don't want to <laughs> describe it to you. Yeah, sounds pretty horrible already with just what you said. Right. So. She also had a single stab wound in her back. What is with these people stabbing people in the back? I don't know. It's <laughs> like, symbolic. It really is. It's horrible. <laughs> the woman was petite, about 100 pounds and pretty short. She had Bright red hair. Oh, wow. Like Claire. <laughs> and she appeared to be in her 30s. The bicyclist immediately reported the body to authorities, and they identified her as 37-year-old Peggy Hetrick, a Fort Collins resident. Fort Collins Police Department Lieutenant Jim Broderick was one of the first on the scene, and he worked this case until the very end. He determined that Peggy was last seen leaving the Prime Minister Pub and Grill, which is now closed and is the Olive Garden. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love the Olive Claire Garden. Claire <laughs> and I have our friendship dates there quite yes, a bit. Yes, we do. It's one of our favorite restaurants. It is. <laughs> um, she did not have a car, so she arrived and left the bar on foot. At the bar, Peggy is seen talking with her ex-boyfriend, Matt Zollner. They had recently broken up. They're seen talking, dancing, and he offers her a ride home, and she declines and leaves the bar alone shortly after. Does her ex work at this bar, or is he just there with her? He's actually there with another woman. Oh, she just ran, She just ran into him there. Okay. And the reason they know this is because they clearly interviewed the ex-boyfriend. Mm-hmm. As you do. Yeah. I, that would be my first suspect right. on my list of suspects. They did question him, but they let him go pretty quickly after right. that. Yeah. Which later will determine <laughs> whether that was a good idea. Oh, my God. <laughs> um. So, right. So, Matt says Peggy left at about 1.15 a.m. And we have the bicyclist riding by at 6 a.m. So, it was approximately six hours of... Something happened. Yeah. During those <laughs> approximately six hours, detectives believe that Peggy was on her way home when someone came up from behind and stabbed her in the back. They do not believe she saw this coming. A pool of blood and a partially smoked cigarette belonging to Peggy were found on the curb adjacent to the field her body was left in. 
Interesting. Okay. There were bloody marks from the curb that span about 103.5 feet to where her body was displayed. Oh, my gosh. So could she have, like, been stabbed and then try to get away and she, like, No, because it's a very, it's like a very straight, clean line. carried her, probably. Right. Or dragged her. Oh, God. Okay. And then they believe that, so they believe the stabbing took place on the sidewalk, dragged her to the field, or carried her, and then mutilated her body there and cleaned it kind of, like, it was clean. It was not fully clean, but cleaner than- her wounds were cleaned? Yes. So that you could- Whoever came upon it, like, the mutilation was obvious right away. Oh, God. So, sh- oh, gosh. Okay. Yep. And yep. her arms and legs were displayed, like, up. Like, her arms were up and her legs were out. She wasn't, like, in a ball or curled on the, her side or anything. And So, clearly positioned, positioned. by her killer. Okay. Right. And her um, pants were pulled down to her knees and her clothes were pulled up above her breasts so you could see the mutilation. Oh, gosh. That's horrible. I'm sorry. That was so awful. That was so sad. Okay. Okay. You have to know it. <laughs> to know the story. I know. Okay. Her purse and her jewelry were still on also, which immediately rules out any robbery motives. Right. I was just about to ask if it right. was a robbery gone wrong or something. No. It was clearly... The detectives say it was clearly a sexual homicide the moment they arrived on the scene. Right. The Larimer County coroner determined that the killer used a serrated knife with a five-inch blade to execute the single stab wound. It only took a single stab to kill her because the knife lacerated her left lung and left pulmonary artery. So they say that it would have only taken a few minutes for her to bleed and die. So luckily, she probably wasn't alive when the mutilation took place, which I I hope was the case yeah. because it's awful. Mm-hmm. During the initial investigation, detectives talked to Clyde Masters, whose home overlooked the crime scene. Kind of. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't like he was the only house in the area, but it was like the back of his house backed up to the field, and it was about 100 or so feet from the back of his house. Right. Did he own that land, or was it just... No. Okay. So he actually lives in a trailer home, and... I believe it, it's a trailer park, but I can't be positive. Okay, gotcha. I, I don't know if it's just the single trailer home. I'm not sure. But he said that he did not hear or see anything, but that his 15-year-old son, Timothy, had stopped to look at something that morning while walking to the bus stop. So he probably just walked, watched him make sure he got to the bus stop safely mm-hmm. and he says that he normally just walks straight through the field but that he kind of stopped and looked at something for a second and then veered a little bit a different way kind of went around something and then to the bus stop huh so detectives <laughs> pay Tim a visit yep at, exactly <laughs> at school at and he goes to Fort Collins High School and at the time it was still the University Center for the Arts was still the Fort Collins High oh School oh my gosh okay right I took a lot of classes in that place. (laughs) And when they ask him, like, hey, Tim, you know why we're we're talking to you? He goes, yeah, it's been bothering me. Oh, no. He probably saw the body then. And I mean, how old is this kid again? 15. So that's something difficult to process. And remember that it's the 80s, so you're not just going to, you don't have a cell phone. 
No. See, and and I mean, like, I mean, he could have gone home. He could have told someone. And told someone, but, but he didn't even scream or anything. He just avoided it. Well, Tim thought it was a mannequin at first. Oh, that's and, fair. And I mean, the first true crime rule is that it's never a mannequin. It's mannequin yeah. But <laughs> honestly, in this case, I saw the crime scene photos. And I didn't see, like, the mutilation, but they took a photo. You can look at it. And it's actually, there's, I think it's on the Coloradoans website. But mm-hmm. there's a photo where they took a photo of her body but eliminated the mutilation. So you can see, like, her arms and her head. Uh-huh. And she has, I mean, she has hair like you, like, bright red hair mm-hmm. that honestly does not look like a natural hair color. Sure. Like, it's just very bright red hair. I'm sure it was, but... Mm-hmm. Do, I'm, people assume you have dyed hair all the time, I'm sure. Yeah, I've had a couple of people come up to me and they're like, are you sure that's natural? And I was like, yeah. Because it's very beautiful the pictures? red yeah. hair. It doesn't <laughs> well, look you. natural. Thank you very much. I mean, it does, but yeah. you know what I'm saying. Yes. And she's also like really thin. Mm-hmm. And so she, I mean, she looks has the perfect mannequin body type. Yeah. She's also very pale and she had been laying naked in a field in April in Fort Collins which is cold. Yeah. Like it's still winter. It's still snowing here in yeah. April. And so I'm sure her body got even more flushed by mm-hmm. being out. If you glance at it, it does look like a mannequin. Yeah, that's fair. So that's what he tells them. Thought mm-hmm. it was a mannequin, but then he's kind of like, well, later when I got to school and kind of thought about it more, I kind of started to realize it might have not been a mannequin. And he's a 15 year old boy. Yeah. I. That's a lot to process. I agree. Just walking upon a dead body Mm -hmm. right behind your house. So I'm not going to jump to conclusions about this. Me either. I think think his reaction and the way he told police, he was like, it's been bothering me. That seems pretty genuine to me. I know. But Tim is the stereotypical 80s metal rock sort of (laughs) like darker kid. Like a punk rock guy. Who lives in a trailer park. Some offensive people would probably describe him as white trash. Mm-hmm. And to police, that's just not a good look when you live 100 feet from a crime scene. So really without fully considering anyone else, they kind of make Tim the primary suspect immediately. And they, I mean, they look into the boyfriend, like I said, but mm-hmm. he really was, they look into other people. It's not like they immediately pegged him as the killer, but they kind of did at the same time. Right. That seems a little irrational to me, though. And it's to me, it's like the 80s was the time of like Motorhead and Iron Maiden yes. and Metallica. They're, all of that. Yeah. All of that album art is yeah. creepy. Uh-huh. And he's a teenage boy. Like what teenage boy is not into that stuff? Exactly. And I think it was just the fact that he. I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, let me. OK, let me tell you more. And then we can be more infuriated. Yes. The infuriation is just going to grow exponentially throughout this episode. Oh, gosh. Okay. So they go back to Tim's house and search his room. There is a lot of creepy stuff in there, but having creepy stuff does not make you a murderer. Nope. But in the detective's eyes, it kind of does. So they find, and I'm going to be honest, before I tell you what this, they find, it doesn't look great, but... Okay. It does. It's also not incriminating. They find seven knives kind oh. of displayed on his desk. And <laughs> that's like, fun. <laughs> like survival knives. Like, oh, like a, like a, not like a pocket knife, like a knife, like a stabbing knife. Like a machete knife. knife kind of thing. 
I mean, not a machete, but... But, like, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, like, I they're do. not retractable. They're, like, giant-ass Yeah, knives. it's okay. not a Swiss Army knife. Okay. And notebooks full of drawings and narratives about violence, especially towards women, um, decapitation, dismemberment. But, like I said earlier, I mean, does this not describe album art from all of these rock bands? You're not wrong. I mean, I just keep thinking about, like, Ozzy Osbourne in the back of my brain right. all the time. Right, and... But it also describes an angsty teenage boy like I. Right. And I mean, I'm a little put off by the notes, just like the de, what he's describing, just because I know that a lot of creepy serial killers keep notebooks filled with like horrible, horrible things. So that's weird. But the knife thing I could get behind and like band art I could get behind. Like I could be like, that doesn't make that doesn't mean anything. And it's not specifically band art. It just reminds me of it. Yeah. It just reminds mm-hmm. me of the album covers mm-hmm. and t shirts and posters that every fifteen year old boy in the eighties probably had. Unless I, you were like a jock. Right. Know. And also he lives in a trailer home. So I'm assuming I don't know this, but I'm assuming his family probably doesn't have tons of money for him to do extracurricular activities and so he's pro- drawing's probably like his hobby. Right. Doesn't make you a murderer. Exactly. When detectives talk to him and he says, I thought it was a mannequin, he also says he thought that someone was playing a prank on him and he didn't want to be made fun of. So he just walked away. And knowing that he's kind of this emo kid that's probably, he's been described as shy and not having a lot of friends, I can totally see how he would think that especially if students saw what he was drawing in his notebooks at school and kind of exploited that yeah I could understand that too because I mean you don't really have the internet to be mean to people on so Mm -hmm. elaborate pranks are popular and again kind of looked like a mannequin yeah just gotta say that Mm -hmm. they administer a polygraph test Uh, inadmissible in court Dumb. Don't Get out do of there. Just don't do them. Yeah, just say no. <laughs> no one's going to hate you if you say no to a polygraph test. It makes you look like you're hiding something a little when you say no, but also it doesn't matter because they matter. can't use that. No. Like, like, you could be, I mean, the Green River Killer took a polygraph right. and passed it every single time he took it, but he killed all those women. Because so. he's a sociopath and he doesn't yes. have emotions, so you can... So he can't be traced for right. that stuff. Like, he doesn't have the same amount of anxiety that other people do, so it's just not the same. They're just... Just don't take them. Yeah, just don't take them. Because he fails. <laughs> of course he does. But Poor kid, he's 15. He's 15, and he's been interviewed and interrogated for six hours, and they send in, like, four or five different detectives to try... All the tactics under the sun. They do, like, good cop, bad cop. They bring in, like, the female cop who's like, just tell me, honey, like, like you know, you like, really, trouble. like hold his, holds his hand. And yeah. they try, like, the cop that's, like, yelling, like, she's dead, <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. at him. And he's, like, a 15-year-old boy. And if you watch the interrogations, he just looks so defeated and sad. Mm-hmm. And I just want to give him a hug. Yeah. He's like, thing. I didn't do it. <laughs> he just keeps saying, like, I don't know what yeah. you're talking about I didn't do it yeah and so I can imagine his blood pressure was probably high Mm -hmm. so that explains the the polygraph but with the results of the polygraph in mind the detectives go back to his bedroom and to the scene and try to find any amount of evidence to arrest him with 
They find nothing. They test those knives. Mm-hmm. No blood on them. They test all his clothes in the room, all his shoes, no blood, nothing. No, nothing to indicate he w- was even in the field that night. Mm-hmm. They even look in the drain pipes because it was the night before. So if he washed blood down the drain pipes, they would have recovered it and they did not. <laughs> yeah. And he would have to wash if he was the killer, he would have to wash all of the blood off of the knife or get rid of the knife somehow. And if they can't find any actual evidence to peg him as the killer, then they should just let him go home. Right. He's either innocent or the smartest 15-year-old ever. Ever. <laughs> Anyways, so the case goes cold. And after a few years, Linda Wheeler, a detective with the Fort Collins Police Department, is assigned to reopen the case and told specifically to try to connect the evidence to Tim Masters. Wow. <laughs> right. So clearly this department has a guy in mind and they're convinced it's him and they're, they can't be told otherwise. Which is horrible. I just feel like that's not the right way that justice, justice should be wielded. No. So she works the case for about a year before finding what she believes to be the missing piece of evidence. A former friend of Tim's comes forward and says that back in high school, Tim had been discussing an aspect of the case that at the time was special knowledge. The friend said that Tim knew about a specific body part that was removed during the mutilation, a body part that had not been released to the public. So detectives are like, gotcha. Like, oh, no. And they go find Tim, who's now out of the house. He's in like his in 20s. A, yeah. yeah. And they question him, thinking that for sure they would reveal something to help them get an arrest warrant signed. But Tim says, everyone at school knew about that. It was actually common knowledge. And <laughs> this is so dumb. Reminds them that when the crime had occurred, had just occurred, like right after, police enlisted some students to help search the field for evidence. And one of those students leaked some information because it's, it's, it's a, a student. student. <laughs> yeah. I end up liking her. But right now I'm like, Linda. <laughs> like Linda, come on. And also she was the detective who during the canvassing of the neighborhood was the one who talked to Clyde Masters first. She was she was the one who first even brought Tim to their attention. Right. And police confirm with the student who leaked the information that that was in fact the case. So... Linda starts to think that they've got the wrong guy. I agree with Linda. You should. (laughs) She says that she wants to start the case over and look into different suspects, maybe get the help, some help from the FBI. And just like that, she's demoted back to a patrol officer. What the heck? Why did that? Why are they so fixated on this kid? I don't understand. I don't know. And she eventually quits. And good for Linda. I cannot be completely sure that the demotion was because she was really insistent about Tim not being the killer. But mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like backlash to me because yeah. it happened right after. And I think that that kind of made people afraid to bring up other theories because Broderick, the lieutenant who was on the scene, he really thinks that Tim did it. Around the same time, Broderick. <laughs> the guy I was just talking about, is promoted to supervisor and is now in the position to reopen the case and work it himself. 
like I said, this guy essentially has blinders on when it comes to identifying suspects and can only see Tim. And Broderick turns to Reed Malloy, an expert in the the field of pathology of homicide, and basically asks him to draw some conclusions about those creepy drawings that were in Tim's room. Essentially, Malloy says that these exhibit a fantasy of violence, which, I mean, <laughs> they kind of do, but also, like, just because you draw that doesn't mean you're going to do it. And... Yeah, exactly. It, it's all circumstantial, and it doesn't have, like, did he draw exactly what happened to Peggy? Well, I don't think so. He think we'll get to that. Okay, okay. That's a contested point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, Broderick brings this information to the district attorney's office, and they start pre- pre- preparing to make an arrest. On what? <laughs> like, there's no evidence that he did anything. There's just, you just have some creepy drawings that this 15-year-old kid did. I know. The what? Pros- <laughs> I know. I-, I mean, I just think about my brother and just how many creepy knives he has, because he's like this cute little boy scout, and he just likes them. Like, he's a boy. Like, I don't know. He's like a cliche kid, you know? So it's just... I don't know. That just doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. I <laughs> so d- I'm shocked that it <laughs> yeah. happened. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> the prosecuting attorneys are Terrence Gilmore and Jolene Blair. Like you said, they still don't have any physical evidence, but they feel like it's now or never. They know the case is probably not going to get any better, but they feel like since they have this expert witness that their chances of getting a conviction are as good as they're going to get. See, I've always thought that was really weird. It's like you're fighting the conviction and not the actual killer. You know what I mean? Like they they just want to get close the case and they don't want to have it open. And so they just are ready to convict the most convenient person. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like the fact is, is that you're dealing out justice for whoever killed her. So if you're serving a sentence to someone who actually didn't do the crime then are you actually serving justice for Peggy? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Or are you just playing off of some dumb stereotype so you don't have to see the file on your desk anymore? Like, that's so stupid. Yep. And not to overgeneralize, but that is a common prosecutor attorney view, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. I agree. They're not all bad. No. but And, um, you know, sometimes those generalizations prove correct, but... Right. Not in and every case. I'm sure that Terrence and Jolene had good intentions, but uh, I don't know. So Tim is an adult and has served in the Navy. He's like full grown living in a house in California and they arrest him in 1999 or 98. And he's tried <laughs> um, with first degree murder in 1999 again based solely on one guy's interpretation of some photos this kid drew when he was an angsty teenager. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. So that's the end of part one. We've got an arrest. We're going to have a trial. We're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about. So please tune into part two to hear the rest of the Peggy Hetrick story. And thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.